Please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 16. There's a real danger whenever you come face to face with powerful characters. You tend to stand in awe of them. And there's a danger that you abandon all the normal application of wise discernment and judgment in your consideration of them. So enthralled are you by their personality, their popularity, their abilities, their apparent success. You allow all of these external things to act as a kind of veneer or a gloss finish over the surface of them. And it so so captivates you, you fail to look any deeper than that. You don't look behind the scenes, as it were. Worse still, you don't really care what's going on behind the scenes. Well, this experience and feeling that they give me is so thrilling. Who cares what they're like when they're not centre stage? And of course, if if it's the Lord's people we're thinking of in that way, then it becomes even more dangerous. Consider the opening three verses of Judges chapter 16, if you have that in front of you. Most people probably read verse 1 and quickly keep on reading, preferring not to dwell upon that, because look at what he does in verse 3. He takes the two city gates and the posts, which he's pulled out of the ground with his bare hands, and carries them 40 miles to Hebron. And perhaps we just want to get to that verse. We just want to focus on this next great feat of strength from Samson. But hey, hang on a minute. Slow down. Have you forgotten who this man is? Have you allowed yourself to dismiss as irrelevant how this man even came to be born? Have you forgotten already what it was that God said he was bringing him into the world to do? Have you forgotten the vow that this man is under before the sovereign God of the universe? Why is it that we don't find ourselves unable to get beyond verse 1 because of the tears that are welling up in our eyes? This is God's appointed servant for Israel, the one who will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So what does he go and do? He goes to their capital city of Gaza and finds a prostitute so that he can gratify his unrepented sexual immorality. Imagine a church pastor doing that in a city where he'd been invited to go and preach. Imagine that story getting out, but all anyone says is, well, yes, yes, but did you hear how he preached the next day? Now, you might think that's a bit of a crazy comparison. But is it so crazy? This man, Samson, in some ways, in terms of Bible characters, he throws up some of the most difficult conundrums in all of the Bible. That God would continue to use a man like this when so much of his behaviour is actually an abomination to God. His behaviour can never be condoned, no matter how you try to present it. Yet God has seen fit to have the exploits of this man laid bare on the pages of Scripture 
rather than conveniently sweep them under the carpet. And ultimately, it's what the story of Samson tells us about God that we must not miss. I want to consider three things with you this morning from chapter 16. They're very well-known verses to many of you I know. Let's trust in the Lord to speak to us afresh from them this morning. Number one, the peril of nurturing sin. This is the opening four verses of the chapter. In many ways, Samson is like a one-man Israel. Everything about Israel is summed up in Samson. Israel are supposed to see themselves in Samson. And actually, perhaps, as a Christian, you can see something of yourself too. In the previous chapters of Judges, the emphasis has been Israel's repeated apostasy as they plunge themselves headlong into spiritual idolatry and in the worship of foreign gods and idols. Samson's sexual immorality is in some ways a picture of what Israel is doing to God spiritually. To be God's people, yet to flirt with and, if you like, have a relationship with other gods. That's the spiritual equivalent of what Samson is doing physically with all of these different women. Idolatry in Israel is spiritual infidelity, spiritual betrayal, spiritual adultery against God. It's pictured in Samson's life. We've seen Israel plunge deeper and deeper into that particular sin of idolatry and we watch Samson spiralling down and down into his own sin and eventually it will lead him to verse 21 and beyond. If you nurture sin in your heart, in your head, if you continue in it and refuse to to repent of it, and I'm talking now particularly to Christians, Please take note of the desperate plight and condition of Samson in verse 21. Of course, if you're not saved at all, then you too need to take seriously this this teaching, this need in all of us to turn from our sin in repentance to God. But it's something that even as Christians, we need to continue to give great heed to in our own lives. We see that Samson has no control over his sexual desires, verse 1, and then again in verse 4. It seems he's not even trying. Perhaps he does lie awake at night, being pummeled by his own conscience, but there's no obvious sign of that. And the thing is this, whilst we know it ought not to be so, amongst those who belong to the Lord, the reality is that it can be so amongst those who belong to the Lord. And it is so far too frequently. This man who is commended for his faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we watch sleeping with a prostitute in Judges chapter 16. That stuns me. It baffles me. But as I contemplate these things, I'm also forced to realise that what should stun me even more 
is how lax and accommodating of sin I can be within myself. How slow I can be to seriously and rigorously examine myself in the light of Scripture to see if I am walking in the faith as I ought to be. How is it for you? How easy to be judgmental of others. But to humble myself before God, to humble myself before his word, that just seems to require unparalleled discipline and self-control. Why is it that on so many occasions the Apostle Paul can be found urging Christians to press on in sanctification? Why does he so regularly need to point out to converted, born-again men and women that they need to keep on giving themselves to the pursuit of righteousness and godly living the way that he does in so many places in his letters in the New Testament? Well, I think it's very part, very in large partly because he understands that we are all confronted with this ongoing battle of the will within ourselves. You'll recall his own struggles, which he admits to in, in Romans chapter 7, not doing what he wills to do and doing those things which he wills not to do. Oh, wretched body of death that I inhabit every day, he says. But the significant thing to note with Paul is that he engaged himself in that struggle. Having that struggle does not mean that you're not a Christian. In fact, having such an awareness of it as Paul did is actually a sign of healthy spiritual life. To feel your sin and to be in, uh, in warfare against it. That's a sign of spiritual health and vitality. Not being bothered about it. That might lead to a different conclusion. One observation made by the Puritan John Flavel is that when we appear to be making outward gains in life, that is when we are most in danger of suffering spiritual losses which of course is the opposite side of the coin to when the apostle paul spoke of being ready to lose all earthly gains in order to profit spiritually outward gain can lead to inner loss said flavel inner gain requires outward loss Samson's last escapade was his defeat of a thousand Philistines using the jawbone of a donkey. But his soul is in decline because he continually fails to take heed to himself. He does these super, superlative things outwardly, but in, inwardly? He's losing ground all the time. For all his success, there's this very obvious sin which he's nurturing and feeding. And the longer he fails to resist it, the tighter its grip on him becomes. 
and the more his appetite for it grows. And spiritually, he spirals down and down and down. That's what happens. That's why the exhortations of Jesus and his apostles are those that if you, if you will be followers of Christ, you must actively give yourself to putting off your old sinful nature, doing away with sin and putting on Christ. It's also noticeable that so far in the story of Samson, Scripture records only one time that he prayed. And that was his single cry to the Lord in chapter 15, verse 18, when he was thirsty. And only one further prayer of Samson's is recorded. And that will be moments before his death, which we'll get to later. It's not easy to pray when you're harboring sin and when your mind is taken up with things which are not of God. And seemingly, in Samson's case, your only thought is who the next woman will be. Is it any wonder that when you're living like that, you have no desire to commune with the Lord or take that to the Lord in prayer? The peril of nurturing sin. Dear Christian friends, let's allow Samson's life to warn us starkly of the downward trajectory spiritually that your life will take when you fail to flee from sin. And we're not surprised, therefore, to discover, secondly, the peril of careless arrogance. I don't think I'm being unfair to Samson in accusing him of that. Careless arrogance. Look at verses 5 to 21. Samson and Delilah. What a pair they are. She sees in him an opportunity for riches and fame. He sees her as sport and fair game. She sets herself the goal of discovering the secret of his immense strength. And he sees it as a wonderful game he can play and accepts the challenge. It's a rather bizarre relationship. But there's a careless arrogance about Samson which comes out in these verses that with which God has gifted him, that ought to be something which he holds in high regard, something which is precious and holy, and he ought to hold it in his hands like a faithful steward. But instead, he's happy to make it the object of a game to play with Delilah. And he has a deeply misplaced confidence in his ability to win. He should be guarding the secret of his strength with great reverence for God. But he seems to treat it not as a gift that he has from God, but something which is his by right and which he can treat as a plaything. I read this comment during the week. Our sinful hearts will find ways to use even God's blessings to ruin our lives. 
As for Delilah, well, with a prize pot of 1,100 pieces of silver guaranteed, and note, not 1,100 pieces in total, but 1,100 from each of the leaders of the Philistines, goodness knows how many there were, Kaching, as some would say today, result, what a payday! No wonder she goes after Samson. Let the game begin. And there's no beating around the bush for Delilah. Say what you mean, why don't you? Verse 6. So, Samson, tell me where you get your great strength from and how can you be stopped? Well, even Samson can't be that stupid that he's not suspicious of a question like that. Someone who truly loves him. Well, she may well ask the first part of that question. But why does she specifically want to know how he can be defeated and overpowered? Well, seven bowstrings, several new ropes and one new loom later, Delilah's getting nowhere. And probably after these first few rounds, Samson is rather enjoying making a fool of both her and the Philistines who each time they come charging in, he is able to dispatch with ease. But then Delilah pulls out her own secret weapon in verse 15 with this oh-so-familiar phrase, If you really loved me. If you really loved me. This is a vicious argument to use in a relationship. If you really loved me, you'd give me what I'm demanding from you. If you don't give it to me, then I'm going to assume that you don't love me and our relationship is put in danger and it's all your fault. It's vicious. In marriage vows, both parties promise to give to the other, not demand from them. And she goes on and on and on and wears him down. Many bags filled with 1,100 pieces of silver mean that she is not going to relent and eventually he does. So he tells her, verse 17, tells her about the vow that he's under and his long hair. And she brazenly lulls him to sleep, shaves off his hair and repeats her alarm call one last time the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But his strength, verse 19, has already left him. And the reason for his lack of strength? Well, because his hair has been cut. Actually, no. The reason his strength has left him is because the Lord has departed from him. Verse 20. 
His long hair has only been a visible sign of the vow that he is under. His long hair has never been the source of his strength. God has been the source of his strength. We've read on a number of occasions, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him to make him strong. But Samson, still as a picture of everything that's wrong with Israel, as the result of a man whose nurturing of sin has led to this careless arrogance, as a man who's just begun to take it for granted that he can turn on his strength whenever he wants to, as a man who's shown complete disregard for the vow he's under before the Lord God of Israel, he has discovered that just as God abandoned Israel in chapter 10 because Israel had forsaken God, God has abandoned Samson because Samson has forsaken God and the vow that he is under. Samson has forgotten that he's completely dependent upon the grace and power of God and in his careless arrogance, the reality of that has completely escaped him. And on account of that, so now has his strength. Arrogance and complacency for us in our walk with Christ, it's a great danger. A self-reliance can slowly creep in. We don't notice its arrival. And it can grow so imperceptibly at first, we just don't see it happening. And this is one reason why we need to be regularly at all the means of grace that God has given us. In the word of God and at prayer. Sitting under good preaching. Being at the Lord's table. Always being at the church prayer meeting. Being reminded again and again, as Eamon did for us last week, of the, tra the transcendency of God and of the poverty of our own condition and of our utter dependence upon God's grace and upon Christ and upon the work of his word and spirit within us and of our need to cry out to him over and over for all that we are in need of and to find it only in him through Christ abiding in Christ that there, in him, we might continue to bear good fruit. And we see that Samson is overpowered with ease and utterly humiliated. His eyes are gouged out. <laughs> Let him find the jawbone of a donkey now. It was actually a, a very common punishment against enemies to disable them and humiliate them he's put to work on the grinding mill in the prison what a sorry state this man is in but God in his infinite grace and wisdom and long-suffering whilst he may have departed from Samson he has not forsaken and abandoned him. It's staggering. And so we conclude thirdly with the overruling of a sovereign God.
if you were making a film of Samson, Samson's story as he turns the grinding mill in the prison, what might you see to depict verse 22? Well, maybe a series of close-up time-lapse images uh, focusing in on Samson's scalp as we watch his hair returning. Now, if it isn't actually his hair which is the cause of his strength, why include this detail? Surely it's to remind us that the vow that Samson is under does not now lie in tatters as we might suppose. The Philistines certainly think that they've trumped over this vow of Samson. They think they've trodden it into the ground, as in verses 23 and 24, they throw the biggest party in years to celebrate the victory that their god Dagon has wrought for them in the defeat of Samson. Their god, they believe, has done this great thing for them. Of course, they couldn't be more mistaken. It's not the activity of their god that gave Samson into their hands. It was the absence of Samson's God. But Samson is not forsaken. God has not forgotten what he said to Samson's mother. Look again at verse 7 of chapter 13. And remember who it is that's speaking. This is the this is the eternal, all-wise, all-knowing, sovereign over all things, God, who speaks to Manoah's wife. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end. This is the God who says that when he starts a work in someone, he will complete it. What did he say? The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, to the day of his death. When you read in chapter 16, verse 22, that Samson's hair began to grow again, your own should stand up on the back of your neck. The vow still stands. Because this vow was not established by Samson towards God. This vow was established by God towards Samson. Here are these pagan Philistines giving to Dagon the worship and praise that should be given to the one true God of Israel. And God is bristling with indignation at such blasphemous idolatry. And as God bristles, so does Samson's head. And why? Because God has not abandoned that vow that was established with Samson. This wretched, infuriating man, he is still God's man. And God has not abandoned him. And God has not forsaken him. And God will be his strength one final time. I find this thought fills me with two main emotions and reactions. One, 
as I think of the many ways in which I have failed the Lord and still do every day, how marvellous is the long-suffering grace and mercy of God that he has not forsaken and abandoned me. I wouldn't dream of using me, but God does. Unbelievable. And secondly, therefore, how and why could I ever dare to think of taking advantage of that situation that I'm in with God? How would I ever dare think of pushing God to the limit as we might imagine Samson is doing here? How could I ever squander the blessings that I've received as Samson is squandering his? Oh, Lord, forgive me and keep me from ever being like that. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and he completes that work which he begins in those he chooses. The proof? Samson's hair is growing. And as they wheel him out for sport, to mock and insult him, God is ready to return to his very imperfect servant. Samson's being completely humiliated. Could a man be brought down much lower than this? Here is the man who killed a thousand men with one animal bone. The one who carted off a pair of city gates and took them 40 miles away. And now here he is being led by the hand, like a child, by a child, weak, blind, helpless. If you've still yet not understood that God is Samson's strength, well, I trust you will now. As he gets this young lad to position him between the two pillars in the temple, uh, the two main supporting structures and uh, gets this lad to help him just get a feel for them. And as he does that, he calls out to the Lord. He, he names God as Lord. He takes God as Lord. Here is a man who has been brought very, very low. It's taken that to get this request coming from his lips. He owns God as his Lord. Lord, just this one last time, Please strengthen me. As those 3,000 plus Philistines are crushed beneath the stones of the falling temple, the final realisation that they have is that Dagon is nothing and the God of Israel is everything. The God of Israel is Samson's strength. They hadn't accounted for that. Weak, 
helpless, vulnerable, so Samson appeared. Aren't we all? Will not God be your strength for you? Of course he will. Perhaps you have not because you ask not. Samson's was a very simple, straightforward plea. And even with all of the wreckage of his life, God was ready to hear him and answer him. And in the Samson story, in conclusion, we see flickers of a pattern which God is establishing in preparation for the coming of his one true Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll agree with me, there are so many ways in which Samson is not a type of Christ in the Old Testament. But there are intriguing clues in Samson's life as to how it is that God works in salvation. Here is someone chosen and appointed by God from the womb. Although, of course, Christ's incarnation and Christ's conception will be far more glorious than Samson's. Here is a man taken by his enemies and humbled. Although with Samson, it was due to his own sin and folly. Whereas with Christ, these things will be done to him, even though he has no sin of his own. And Samson's suffering doesn't even begin to compare with that which Christ endured, as we remembered last weekend. In Samson, here is one who was able to achieve a great victory in his death. But Samson's death was quick and almost instant. Whereas Christ, he endured the death of the cross. Samson's victory was the greatest of his life, yet it was very limited both in number and by time. His victory affecting only those who were present at that moment and his victory only bringing death. Christ's victory is inexpressible in its extent and in its glory and Christ's victory brings life. The grace that God showed to Samson do I kid myself that I need less grace than Samson did? The faithfulness that God showed to Samson staggers me that God will also be faithful to the likes of me. And he is. And for you. We can be taken in by powerful characters. Characters like Samson. But be ever so careful not to miss the whole point. This story is not recorded in the Bible so that you can be taken in by the likes of Samson. 
This story is recorded that you might be taken in by the God of Samson. Just as Samson discovered, everything that you need on account of all that you are and all that you've done and all that you lack, everything you stand in need of, you will find in the God of the Bible. Grace, mercy, salvation, forgiveness, kindness, long-suffering, faithfulness, strength, all found in him and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the victory, his death has won for you.